You are listening to March Madmen, the podcast conceived to excavate the bones of that unquiet spirit which deserves to reign supreme among horror movies in the haunted house subgenre. Overall, our quest is to find the greatest horror film of all time, but this season we've started the Odyssey with 32 haunted house films paired against each other, two at a time. And now, we're down to the final matchup in our Evil Eight. After tonight, the Forbidding Four, Ferocious Four, Frightful Four, Fatal Four, whatever the hell we're calling it, will be set. In the arena are two movies that feature Spanish-speaking characters. But that's about all they have in common, at least at first glance. We've got a shower kill that makes the one in Psycho look like a woman dying in her sleep. There's a glass of spilled milk you can cry over. We have in-home treasure hunts that are fun for the whole family, living and dead. And a lighthouse that will warm your soul with its gentle, inspirational music-accompanied glow. It's Aterados versus El Orfanato! Bring on La Fantasmas, John Evans here, as always, joined by my two remarkable talented co-hosts, screenwriter Vikram Wheat and Emmy-nominated TV producer Rich Eckersley. Oh, Gentlemen. I, I feel like we're going to get letters about the, your uh, enunciation at the end there. <laughs> Aterados? <laughs> or La Fantasmas? <laughs> or was it El Orfanato? <laughs> All this stuff. Let's let's be, let's be honest. Uh, we want to get letters. That would be that would be a step up, guys. Yeah. If you're offended, if you're offended, please please write to us somewhere. Yeah, yeah that, John. John is just this is just a cry for help. You're hearing people. <laughs> just just recognize them. Let them know that you're out there. <laughs> you should hear me order uh, Mexican food, man. All right. Yes, I suck at pronunciation, but I am pretty good at talking about horror movies. And luckily, that's what we're here to do. Rich, how you doing tonight? I'm in high spirits, John. Um, <laughs> I see what you did there. Uh, yeah, that was strictly there for the pun. I'm doing okay. We are on pins and needles waiting to hear about the purchase of a new house that is even further from civilization than our, our current house and uh, built almost 100 years ago. I am sure that it is just rife with spirits and ghost activity, and I cannot wait for my kids to develop imaginary friends, for my wife and I to invite a priest over uh, or a nun so that she can vomit on her way home. Uh, and, <laughs> and I really, really need to invest in a Ouija board uh, as part of our as part of our moving budget. So uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. It's not. It's not in the bag yet, but it would be a a hell of a place to record a podcast about haunted houses. I'll tell you that. I'm really struck by the b- bizarre synchronicity that uh, – a little peek behind the curtain here, everybody. We're editing shows recorded months before the shows that we're actually recording. And it's probably good for you all to know that because you're going to hear some random references to things that happened a long time ago here and there. But I was just editing our Amityville show, and Vic talked about the, the Foley work on the nun puking. And he brought it up again all of these months later out of nowhere. And props to you, Vic, because, yes, that was an immortal scene in an immortal film. John, it's the it's 
hands down the most memorable moment in that entire film. Also, I just want to throw this out there. When you were doing your intro, this popped into my head. Have we considered the Fluffy Four? Ooh, huh? It's got an F in the name in the first uh, word. The Furry Four? Technically. The fluffy Four? Something like that. I don't know. Fuzzy? Do um, we go fuzzy? Yeah, we just say we could go against type. You know, let's, let's no, yeah. we should do that. So, I was going to say, yeah, I just have, like, what the hell are you guys talking about? <laughs> <laughs> the fugly four? I don't know. Hey! <laughs> well, uh, we'll take that under advisement, Vic. Um, yes. But, yeah, we'll try to nail that down by the time we actually record uh, the next episode. And we'll that, unveil that, it. That is an exciting point that you're, that you're making there, though, Vic, is that this is the, the final uh, round of whatever it is that, that this batch is called. I'm sure it's a catchy name, like the uh, other one that you just had. The the egalitarian oh. eight. <laughs> the the effer, effervescent eight, I believe, is what we went with. <laughs> so this round is coming to an end. Am I, am I correct, John? Where are we going for? Were, were, were you spacing out during my intro? Uh, I, I think I said that. Yes, it's the you, final, final matchup in the evil eight, man. Come on. I mean, yes, I was spacing out. <laughs> Well, that's usually what you do when my voice starts to drone on, as well all the listeners do the same. Why would you be any different? That is how I became a fan of the podcast, actually, was I used to use it to fall asleep. <laughs> it's an incredible cure for insomnia. No actually, John, I am. I know we're, I know we're, our, our intro is dragging on. I do want to take a second and just say that was a great intro, and I, you do some amazing writing. Uh, to kick us off into these, and I want you to know that I notice. Oh, Rich. thanks, buddy. <laughs> I actually, I, I agree. I'm always very complimentary of the writing at the top of the show. I think it is exceptional. I mean, it's all downhill from there, but the opening is <laughs> very strong. Oh, well, thanks, guys. Uh, sometimes I forget to do it, but, uh, but yeah, tonight I, I had a chance. So appreciate that, and uh, without further ado, why don't we get into the meat and gristle and sinew of our proceedings. Hang and on just a second, guys. We have a, uh, sorry, we have a, a visitor here. Do you want to say hi to Uncle John and Uncle Rich? The only one who ever visited Yes. All right. Hello, visitor. But it's time for you to go to bed. We're going to talk about some very, very scary movies, and you're not going to want to be here for it. Yeah. But Sir and I are going to watch Ghostbusters this year. Someday. Someday. Cool. Someday. Yeah. It's a big moment in a boy's life. It is. Someday being the key word. Someday. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, kiddo. Go to sleep. All, All right. right. Sorry about that. Back on track. No worries. Yep. I was nine for the record when I saw Ghostbusters. All right. He's going to be, he'll be seven next week, so. What year did it come out? Well, when I was nine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I probably would have seen it when I was seven if I had been. That's a good point. I saw it in the movie theater, and John, you're a little mm. bit older than me. I was yeah. probably seven. Yeah, exactly. 1984. The kid's first ghost blowjob. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a it, powerful moment in a child's life. It definitely <laughs> has its racier moments. All right. Yeah. All <laughs> okay. Right. So let's start with Terrified, also known as Atrados. <laughs> Historical significance is our first uh, category, 
And uh, let's kick it off with Vic. Vic, what do you think is the historical significance of Atarados? <laughs> I don't love the title of this movie. Not Alterados, uh, but but terrified as a as a translation. Uh, not that it's not a terrifying film. It's a bold choice to to name your film something like that because if you fall short of it, the headlines just sort of write themselves. But it's just not the it's it's a it's a little bland. It doesn't it doesn't uh, speak to how specifically horrifying this movie is. There's not a ton of historical significance around this movie. It's not very old, so it hasn't had much of a chance to have an impact. Uh, it's not been adapted. It wasn't terribly widely released. It seems like the Shutter. This is this is really one of the the crown jewels. I feel like in in Shutter's uh, original releases that they're really uh, they really play it up. But it, that's still not something that's reached a, a, a very wide audience, which is kind of cool because it does make it a movie that I've had a great time telling people, "Hey, have you seen Terrified? If you don't, if you have Shutter, you should totally see it. That movie's awesome." And so it becomes a movie that's fun to champion. And I feel like that's something that we get to do on this podcast, right, is this movie doesn't have the historical significance I think that it should have. And so this becomes one of the places where we can try and push that forward and try and push people to see it and not just watch it but really pay attention to the the specific things that it's doing that are making it uh, so successful and, and why hopefully it will over, the, over time have a, a larger impact on the genre. I did spend a little bit of time looking into the traditions of Argentinian horror. Like was this – is this just the tail end of some sort of cultural thing where much like when J-horror made its way here and there's all kinds of cultural things going on in those films that you know, if you do a little bit of homework, it adds a lot of depth to them and then you start to see Rangu and Juwan and, and those films as part of a progression that goes back to something like Kwaidan. But I, there's not much, uh, and really, I really wound up sort of trolling South America generally. It's not that there aren't a lot of horror films out there, but they tend to be more grounded horror films. A lot of like people being kidnapped, stuff that feels, uh, you know, sort of serial killer. I, I, I abhor the term torture porn, but there's there's not a better colloquialism for it yet. We should think of one by the time we get to that round of the uh, of the podcast. But that feels like a lot of what's coming out of there. It's not exclusive, but again, I went through just synopses on about 100 South American horror films, and I would say that was 60 or 70 percent of them. So this really stands out. This feels like an outlier. I think the historical significance of this film is yet to come, especially when we see what the director does, if, if Del Toro proceeds with the – the planned American remake, if there are sequels, and what sort of original, other original work he's, he's going to get up to. I think that's really going to determine what the significance of this, this movie is. I'm impressed with the, with the dive that you went down, Vic, so I think it's really interesting. I'm glad you explored that. My feeling was that, you know, immediately you don't find anything of it, and if you just look at this movie's history... While it's a very different film, what I saw was a very young Lake Mungo. Like, this is a movie that has a decent amount of buzz, but just doesn't have the views. And at this point, it's already, you know, it's, I think, two years old. 
Del Toro like even like announced his remake in, in 2018. But I think they were doing the the festival circuit around 2018. It just seems like a movie that is flying under the radar. And I think that you hit on something very cool, which is like that gives it a lot of a cred, which I think is also something that is interesting about like Mungo. Like it's fun to have these like underdog films that are not seen. Even when you talk to someone who's a fan of the genre, you, you can recommend it. That's a nice little feather to have in your cap when it comes to, to the movie. But if something doesn't change in the winds for this film, there's a good chance that years down the line, it's still going to be a movie that, that no one's seen. And I mean, that really does seem like a shame, but I can also see how it's going that route. I think part of the issue actually is shutter and like, no, you know, no offense against shutter. I just feel like it is such a niche channel that, and they don't have enough like flagship offerings to, to bring people in. Um, although maybe if they advertised on the podcast, it would, you know, bring some bigger numbers, just throwing it out there. <laughs> I'm really glad that Shudder exists. I think Shudder is very cool. I subscribe to Shudder. I enjoy it. I wish I was like watching more stuff on it, but that's about me, not about them. I think it's a good collection, but I do think that it maybe prevents audiences from finding good horror movies more so than it helps them. And so that's like the the thing that can that concerns me about this film. So I, I don't know in terms of historical significance. Maybe it says something about the splintered nature of streaming in our current era, where there are so many channels that things are getting lost. Even for this show, like us trying to find movies for the podcast, we keep we keep trying to keep track of where everything's streaming, and it's constantly moving. The availability of things like dis sometimes just disappears to where you can't even rent films. It has the potential to get lost in a ever populated and like oversaturated media landscape. And it's kind of sad. That's not what happened to Mungo, but that maybe languished in the in on the banks of like of uh pay cables somewhere. But um it's something that I don't want to see get lost in the woods. Well, I have to say that I believe in the horror community, the movie did make more than a ripple when it first hit the international festival circuit. And, you know, there was buzz, and it certainly landed high-profile streaming deals that have made it available to a fairly large audience. I mean, whatever we want to say about the reach of Shudder, advertising associated with that, I, I think that at least it's, you know, it has been freely available. It hasn't gone away. Um, since it came out, it's still available now. And, uh, when we record this, hopefully when you listen to this, it is, but there is a dearth of critical analysis of the movie online. As far as I could tell, even sort of the major YouTube reviewers don't seem to have covered it, that have covered a lot of the movies that we talk about that I go to for their perspective. And maybe Google and SEO terms are failing me, but I I agree. I, I didn't find a lot of quality essays on Atorados. But the reviews that I did find definitely paint a picture of its effectiveness. And I do think there's some value to a bunch of reviews saying consistently how scary a movie is. And I I think that eventually that is going to make it a a choice for people that are looking for a scary movie to watch. And I I just think it's inevitable that its legend is going to grow. It might be under the radar as we record here. But there's certainly a consensus among people who have seen it that Terrified lives up to its name. And I think that, Vic, you're you're right. It's not an inspired title, but it's appropriate to this movie because if you see it, it leaves a mark. Here are just a few statements that various people have, have made. 
Bloody Disgusting's review included the statement, Some horror films are lucky to nail one iconic scare moment. Terrified has at least five. I think that's 100% true. Somebody else said, uh, All I can tell you is to put it ironically simply is that Terrified absolutely terrified me. Someone else said, It's one of those movies that make every creak and pop in the cold silence a potential terror. This is a recent movie. It's not a big budget movie. It does bear saying that for a movie to have this kind of power on so many different people is a tribute to its convincing VFX, the inspired creature designs, brilliantly designed and staged scare sequences, big props to this designer of of these effects, Marcos Berta. As one reviewer said, Utilizing a mix of practical effects, makeup, and CGI, his creations lurk in the shadows and crawl through the cracks like the best of them. Somebody else said, The movie has the most gorgeous horror feeling that grabs you right by your horror-loving heart. I just think it's, this, is, this is such a crowd-pleaser for people like us. One more for you. Every haunting plays out like an urban legend, a story kids will whisper to each other around a campfire with a flashlight glowing under their chins. That's sort of a, you know, old old school kind of analogy, but I think that this movie will have something of that type of enduring power. And for me, the movie's place in the pantheon is secure. This is a movie I want to own, which has become more and more of an honor in our readily on-demand era. It's the runaway hit of the tournament for me. It's a movie that has only gained traction in my assessment after multiple viewings. Perfect? No. But this is the kind of movie that would do well in our larger super tournament, or whatever we're going to call it, if and when we put various subgenres' best entries against each other, squaring off an open competition to determine the greatest horror film of all time. I think this movie belongs in that tournament. And most of these haunted house movies, in my opinion, that we've looked at of our 32, I don't think they would stand a chance against my favorite horror movies in general across all subgenres. But Terrified, it's every bit as much up my alley as the best zombie films, slashers, creature features, and so on. Whatever you put it up against, Terrified is going to hold its own. I'm not saying it's going to win the whole enchilada, but it's a damn fine film. So personally, for me, historical significance, this movie has it. That's my definition of it. And by God, I am confident that in the long run, Terrified is going to be respected and it's going to earn a higher and higher position on all of these curated lists that we found of the best haunted house movies ever made. I pulled the exact same quote about every every haunting plays out like an urban legend. I huh. literally have that exact quote in my notes. <laughs> and also, I just looked at our list. I believe, uh, sort of at a glance, uh, and with a very minimal amount of Googling, that this is the newest film on the list tied with Ghost Stories, which also came out in 2017. Uh, and Ouija Origin of Evil was at 2016. No. So I do think yeah. there's, there is something substantial to be said for a film that has made it this far in the tournament that has not – had the chance to stand the test of time in the way that something like The Shining has. Yeah, if this movie had, you know, somehow, obviously, technologically impossible, but if if this movie had come out in 1999, like, I have no doubt it would have a larger foothold in history. 
Well, exactly. But that's what I'm saying. Like, I was never arguing with the quality of the film. I'm just talking about in terms of its historical significance that actually its historical significance seems a little out of whack with its stature as a, as a film. I agree with you. If this came out in the late 90s, I think that this thing would be playing in theaters. I think people would be talking about it, especially as a Spanish-language horror film, which we can get into later, was quite the trend like in the, you know, the early millennium. But the fact of the matter is like it, it hasn't. That, that's not a knock against the film. I'm just saying that it's flying pretty far into the radar. Well, also I want to point out that the historical significance category is not like up to this point. It's also forward looking, you know, we're also looking ahead. I don't know how clear you are in the definition of historical. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, no, it, it's, it's not just like, okay. Okay. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, I understand it. I th- but I think you're right. Like there is this, there is a sense in which, you do have to project. Maybe that's really – I mean that's something that, that factors into rewatchability, right? Well, yes, it does. I mean I don't want to blur the two categories too much. You, could, you can make an argument that there's some overlap between these categories. But the idea is how is the larger world going to see this movie over the span of history? And rewatchability is a little more personal than that. that I guess that was my idea. So futurological significance – should be should be a factor in it as well. Yeah. So John, that that's my concern and, and, and that's my point, is that in a way, by being married to Shudder, I mean I don't think that Shudder has anything to attract the non horror fan to it at this point, right? And I'm I'm not necessarily saying they have to. Like that like they can if they can like survive as like a, a niche channel the way they are, then great. But if you're not going to drive a wider audience beyond hardcore horror fans to your site, then how does this how does this film have a chance to grow? It's it's like a it's like a it's like a plant that wants to bloom, John, and it's <laughs> a pot that's too small. Well, first off, I'm sure that is not a lifetime rights deal. I'm sure that it's going to leave Shutter, and at some point it will be on Amazon or Netflix or television. Probably not, but it's going to have many opportunities in the future to, to reach an audience. I, I hope I, I think it's a movie that when people are talking about what to watch for this very Halloween, they will think of this movie or have heard about it or Google it and find it. And I think it's going to make fans every time. So that's all I'm saying. John, well, speaking of Halloween 2021, God damn it. Yes. I'm, I'm talking about Halloween in general. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever Halloween is coming up for the listeners that uh, that are hearing this right now, uh, that's the one I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, I just want to throw one more thing out there, whether this is the right category or not. I know it's not my opinion, and I know how, how much John loves uh, me talking about the opinions of others. But I do think it's worth noting that, that me and my wife have been married for a very long time. It's more than 15 years? I don't know. I can't actually quote you a number, but it's been a while, okay? Since they were and, 13 years old. Yeah, it's, it's been a long time. And I have made her sit through a lot of horror movies, as you can imagine. She's always been very game about watching just about anything I want to turn on. She has not been impressed by this tournament. And I put on Terrified, and when it was over, she told me that that was the scariest movie she has ever seen. The most frightening movie that I've ever shown her. It dethroned, for whatever this is worth, uh, 2003's High Tension was, which was her previous scariest film ever made. So make of that what you will. Uh, I um, consider that a compliment. Um, I, I'm I, trusting her judgment. 
I think it's a I think it's a compliment, and I think it's also just like it does say something to to your point, John. That it's like someone who is like a you know sort of a peripheral horror fan, but not someone who seeks it out, mm-hmm. still acknowledges this film as being truly one of a kind and something exceptional that stands out from the pact. Well, I don't, I don't want to speak for for your wife. But I, I think that she does represent, like, which is a, a very common and large subsection of casual to, you know, yeah, casual fans, let's say, of the genre. They just, they don't want something that screams cheesy, dated, where you can sort of question the, the validity or the reality of what's going on and sort of check out and not be really invested in the movie. And this movie is so convincing, so believable in its representation, both in terms of special effects and just it doesn't go for tonal effects that it can't pull off. And it, it just absolutely, you have to take it seriously. And I think that's one of the most powerful things a horror movie can do for for folks that are not going to be, you know, as generous with tone as like I am when I'm talking about Dagon, which we watched with your wife or house or things of that nature that, you know, it's very easy just to dismiss it because yeah, it's, it's kind of ridiculous, right? Well, this movie is never, I don't think, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but I just, I don't think people are going to see it as ridiculous in the future. And I think that's a tremendous thing that that's, that's exactly why the movie is going to have a life, a long life. All right. Well, how about food for thought? Uh, Rich, what do you have for this one? Really? This is a movie I look back on a lot. I think it has a decent amount to, to really think about partially because it creates these creatures and these scenarios that feel so real. And so, so, so suffering, like the monsters in this not only seem mean, but seem mournful. And yet we know nothing about them or their motivations. And, that could easily be very frustrating. We talked a little bit about it last time, how that was one of the things that kind of bothered us was like the lack of like story and, and character. And, and I, you know, I, I stick by some of those notes. But I think that in some ways that mystery also deepens your interest in what is going on on the other side, so to speak. Like in some ways, this is like the opposite of the of the orphanage. Like, you know, one of the things I want to talk about when we get to the orphanage is the fact that, you know, it's all hinging upon these mysteries and those mysteries are revealed at the end. And that affects how you feel about the movie moving forward. But in this movie, the mysteries don't lose any potency because they're never revealed. All the creatures in this thing are just like this bleak and like invasive dread that you just feel powerless over. It's like they exist and they've always existed and they always will, but we don't know why. I'm no expert on Lovecraft. I know that, that, that Vic is, I'm, I'm sort of like tangentially familiar, but there is something about it that, that strikes me as being sort of of his universe and that it conjures this, this distant and complex underworld that's all around us, but somehow just out of view. It really does make me wonder what, else is behind the wall so to speak you're absolutely right and it gives the sense that if you did see what was back there it would drive you mad and that's the essence of lovecraft and that's why this this lovecraftian really is the word to describe this there is there is something outside that is trying to get in and if you could see it if it revealed itself to you your brain would just 
your your puny mortal brain would just shatter in the face of it. And that's a really hard thing to capture in a film, that sense, without actually revealing it. And I think this movie comes comes pretty damn close in a way that very few movies have. You mentioned like the sort of insanity. Well, Dr. Jono in this film, his eyes are wild and, you know, he's kind of comedically, there's a little comedic relief in sort of his presentation. And you do get the feeling that he's got a few screws loose, right? And it's sort of the idea that you're, that you're saying that if you start to understand as Maura Albrecht does what's going on here, at best, you're going to feel powerless. At worst, you're going to laugh into the void as your mind snaps. Well, it does, like many Lovecraft stories, it opens and closes at an insane asylum. That's right. That's... I mean, that's we, we have a victim who's been driven mad by what by just by getting close to it. I agree. That's a that's a really interesting element of it, and I think one of the strongest things that factors both into the food for thought and the rewatchability. I mean, that leaves mysteries that you want to puzzle out. You want to watch it again and see what other information you can tease out of it. Actually, it was Rosentalk is the character I was thinking of. Jono yeah. is the is the guy that uh, actually keeps his head through through most of the thing. He's like one of the the, the more sane characters. Uh, but yeah, good point, guys. Uh, Vic, do you have any other food for thought? And before you do that, I did want to mention before that, for what it's worth, uh, Fangoria gave this movie some awards when it came out. So they shined their spotlight on it as it won Best Foreign Language Film and it was nominated for Best Director and Best Makeup Effects. I believe it won the, uh, an award at Fantastic Fest as well, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. I saw an interview with mm-hmm. the director that was done in Austin. So That's right. Uh, best Picture at Fantastic Fest. So, yeah, so there, there was, as, as I said at the open, yeah, there was plenty of festival buzz about this movie. This director is someone who is really familiar with other films. And I think that's one of the things that, that helps this translate in a way that not all foreign films do. And so I, so I found this quote where somebody said, um, Corpses returning from the grave allude to Pet Cemetery, while the investigative team of paranormal psychologists will evoke nostalgia for the poltergeist and the conjuring. The interconnectedness of the houses are reminiscent of Takashi Shimizu's Juwan the Grudge, and the motif of water summons memories from other J-horror films like Dark Water. I'm astonished they didn't mention the ring with the water motif as well. And so all of that, I don't mean any of that as an indictment of the film or an, an indictment of its originality, but more that this is clearly the work of someone who has studied the genre and has a really clear vision of what they're they're bringing to it. I think we mentioned almost all of those movies. I mean, I, I think just by virtue of having watched uh, The Legend of Hell House, we were able to reference that with the team of paranormal psychologists. But that's those are all really relevant touchstones in a movie like this and the fact that you can cite all of those and that they are all very different films that they all come together in this very coherent way for this film is is pretty extraordinary and makes it really fun to discuss in uh in an arena like this 
Yeah. Well, one of the things I was going to talk about in, in Food for Thought was the originality of the configuration of this movie in the sense that it's, it is about a, a neighborhood and a constellation of characters. And that ensemble approach is really unusual, certainly within this subgenre, but in, I think in general. And it kind of keeps the audience off balance because we don't have a traditional protagonist. I mean, Captain Funyas is our nominal lead, sort of, because he fits the archetype. Not necessarily in a haunted house movie, but in general, because, you know, the jaded cop with some charisma you think is going to be the, the protagonist. But he, but he isn't. I mean, not structurally, not narratively. I do like thinking about his backstory and continuing story if he got one. But, but no, it, this is not a movie with a protagonist that's ballsy right off the top. There are no sacred cows here, or grotesque cows, for that matter. There's no narrative armor on any one character that will keep them uh, safe. It's not a protagonist-driven film, and I think that's a really interesting, liberating choice that's tough to pull off, but obviously, in my opinion, the movie succeeds with flying colors. I think that makes it unique in its subgenre, and in my view, that's a big deal, and I like thinking about that. And the other thing I wanted to say here was... To dovetail off of what you said, it gives us lots to chew on in terms of mythology as well. We have the whiff of multidimensionality to ponder. And when you start thinking about that before and after the story, like how long has this been going on? Why did it start? What's really going on? Like, is it, what's the backstory of the neighborhood? Why in this place? Why now? What are the origins? I mean, yeah, prequels, sequels, all of that is, I'm in, you know, right? Where does it go from here? I want to know because this movie explodes the traditional family centric cast in the haunted house movie with the true ensemble, not, you know, focusing on a conventional protagonist or antagonist in conflict. And it gives us a really interesting, mysterious mythology that isn't as easily explained as, oh, well, this demon wants to possess a human being so that it can get into our world. And do its thing. It's not that cut and dried and that, that simple and easy to plug into our assumptions about ghosts or demons. So yeah, I just, I'm kind of blown away if that's not obvious by this movie. In the interview, the director talked about the fact that in Argentina and, and he sort of hinted more broadly at South America, that it's really common that the houses all have common walls. And so even unlike something like under the shadow or dark water where you have, we have apartment horror, you know, we have 1408, we have hotel horror, but this is the notion of a true house, a home, but that everyone is, is connected by these, these walls. And that, that gives you this opportunity to come up with this neighborhood horror that is stretched across three separate homes and allows you to tell the story in this kind of disjointed way. And that does seem something that's probably specific to the area, that that's something that he brings to the table because of being from Argentina. So much of this is – inspired by and called from and, and, and pieced together from other bits of supernatural lore and imagery and that kind of thing. But there is some things to this that are, that are truly original and that truly feel uh, grounded in this experience of, of it taking place in Argentina. I tripped over that. I mean, I, I didn't get really the exterior shot that made that 
clear that, that the two houses like share a wall. It is very yeah odd and jarring and hard for us to wrap our heads around, but Allah an apartment, he's angrily the guy in the beginning is is pounding on his wall thinking that he's hearing the remodeling efforts of his neighbor, but then you're like, What? There there's they're living in different houses. So it's hard for us to really understand that spatiality and, and like I said, I don't think we get an exterior shot that totally makes that clear. Yeah, speaking as someone who's has owned a condo, like I related to it pretty quickly. Just, you don't think of a suburban street sharing walls, you know, between houses. Typically not. No, t- not typically like an outward-facing home. We mentioned the fact that the, the filmmaker is trying to work on a, I want to call it episode two, but uh, sure, episode two of, of this series. And I think that we're all, you know, and rightfully so skeptical of sequels. But I will say that there's a big part of me that is curious where he can take this and does it have potential? Like, it seems like you really could ring a very compelling um, second chapter out of this story. You could also definitely screw it up. I mean, there's a lot of films out there where it's like the second you hear it, they're making a sequel. I feel like you just want to roll your eyes at it. And here, I actually think hearing that they're going to make a sequel makes you lean in a bit. Yeah, and sometimes that can activate more awareness of the original film, too. So, yeah, I mean, it it can be a a benefit to raising the profile. Even if the second movie isn't as great as the first, it kind of creates a a franchise and, you know, that that just puts it more on the radar. So anything that will do that, I think we're in agreement, would be a good thing. Let's move on to rewatchability. Vic, would you like to lead off this one? How many hundreds of times do you want to watch this film again? I almost don't want to dull its edges by watching it 50 times. Mm-hmm. And I only say that as someone who's seen The Shining so many times that it's lost some of its ability to to really get under my skin or really creep me out. Not all of it. Great films never lose it entirely, but I do feel like I'm I'm kind of wary of doing that with this film. I, I, I think I did that with Juwan a bit too, where I was so infatuated by that that buzz of fear that I was getting off of it that I kept going back to the well and the buzz just got less and less and less. I think this movie is extremely rewatchable and especially the first half of it. I really enjoy the, the disjointed timeline trying to piece that stuff out. Uh, I feel like the second half when it, when it falls into a more linear space, there's a little less to puzzle out of that element of it. Although there's certainly still plenty to, to rewatch and get something out of, but I feel like this is one I might, I might want to revisit every couple of years so as to have it be as powerful an experience every time. Although certainly I, I get to watch it again, uh, I assume, in the next couple of weeks. And that'll be I'm, – I'm, I'm looking forward to that for sure. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. No, I totally agree, Vic. I've said many times on this podcast, like, life is too short um, and we're too old <laughs> to, to get to watch movies hundreds of times. Uh, we have to keep forging ahead and pick our shots and every viewing of something is precious. So yeah, I I was kidding when I said that we would watch it 50 times, but I mean, I think like that, the idea is, do you want to share it with other people? Is, is the imagery in the movie going to stand the test of time? 
is it a long way from feeling quaint or dated or like some of the movies in our tournament, a foundational film that other movies have since built on and expanded from to such a degree that the original movie's impact is hard to recapture years later. And I think I already covered this, but yeah, by that standard, I think this movie may have the best rewatchability score if I was putting grades on them of any movie in the tournament. That's that's something that I take seriously, and a lot of our 32 entries lack the sort of savage, undeniable, and timeless power of this movie. I'm of the opinion that it will hold up, and whenever we see it again in the future, yeah, I think you could overdo it for sure, and I agree with that. I, agree with, I say that about most movies, and I agree with you about The Shining, too. But this movie has... However you grade rewatchability, it's very high for me. And I also want to point out that it helps that it's not just one kind of scary. There's all kinds of scares in this movie. I don't think it's monotonous or repetitive in any way. And while I agree that, yeah, it the second half... And by the way, it's only an 87-minute movie, which I don't think hurts it. The second half might not be as strong as the first half in terms of the mystery not being as fascinating because we're not getting to the bottom of it, but... The great thrill of the unknown starts to fade a little bit as we move forward. There's that one dialogue-heavy, somewhat pointless scene that I did pick for a low light when we were doing the scorecards in that round, but it's not like I'm looking for the fast-forward button or something. This is not a movie where I think you feel particularly invested in the characters. Yeah, um, There are no real iconic performances or, or, or dialogue or or anything like that. I guess there's, there's, there's like a few like lines here and there, but don't um, you like captain Funyas? I, I like that guy. I mean, for what it's worth, I like him. I just don't know that, you know, a couple months out from watching this movie, if I could really pick him out of a lineup again, I like him. Okay. I just like, I don't feel like he's bringing anything especially unique to the table in terms of, in terms of character. So I'd say like, that's kind of a ding against it in terms of it being like a, like this, this classic that I return to over and over again, I'll still say like, I find the rewatchability to be pretty high. I mean, Vic, you said like every couple of years to me, that is high, high rewatchability. If I'm watching a movie every couple of years, like that's a pretty good um, success rate because as John pointed out, you know, we only have a few days left. (laughs) So you have to make like every minute count. And I'm, I'm on board with that. But, uh, but yeah, I could see watching this every other year. I could definitely see breaking it out every other October. But I can also see it popping up other times just at, at moments where I want a good, effective – you know, this thing transcends ghost story to me a bit. Not the film ghost story, but like the just like the conventions of the ghost story as we've seen it play out. You would you never know? say this is better than a ghost story. No movie is better than a ghost story for Rich. <laughs> I do love Ghost Story. I told me. I will say I've, I've thought about a ghost story more than I've thought about Terrified in the past six months. But that's that's beside the point. I'd say this movie was like slightly less less scary the second time around. It was one of those weird movies where I remembered I remembered the scenes being even more frightening than they were when I watched it again, which is both like a testament to the movie and then also like a slight disappointment when I watched it a second time. Um, just because I was so unnerved the first time I saw it. I do feel like there are little details, especially about like what the, the hunters are, are learning about or trying to relay about the, the creatures throughout the course of the movie. Like There's little details that you can pick up along the way that kind of give you some different shadings. It has true horror pleasures that are hard to deny, 
and it's definitely like a, a visual treat and that's something like worth going back for but there's like you said with with Wendy liking it like there's so many movies that I love but I feel a little trepidation when I share it like with people I'm like are they going to get it are they going to be on the wavelength is it too dated is it this is it that is it going to have the power or is it going to feel silly in some way and and this is a movie that if I was meeting people they're like oh yeah well I've seen um, I've seen Insidious 2 what's a really scary movie I'd be like here's a scary movie and I'd, I'd feel like a badass, you know? I feel like I'm real confident that that person is going to say, John put me on to something that blew my fucking mind. And I love to have movies like that in my in my back pocket to recommend. And there's not that many of them, really, you know, that, that aren't like, well, you have to understand it was the 80s or, well, it's kind of low budget or it's this and that. And you have all these caveats. And I don't think this movie has any of those. So that that's that's really kind of where I'm coming from. Final thoughts, guys, or are we done with this flick for tonight? Yeah, I mean, I get it. Like, no one liked it. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Why don't we go reload our, our bevies and unload our bladders and be right back. All right, intrepid listener, you've made it to the end of part one of this episode. Let's put a pin in the map right there and reconvene next time to discuss El Orfanato and determine a winner. For now, adios.